Hiya, pal. Got an idea. All right, mate, go on. I think we need to evolve the podcast. All right, what you got in mind? Well, why don't we just start recording all the chats we have when we're talking about leadership? Okay, what are we going to call it? Sense makers. Sense makers. Love it. And have we got a backer? Of course we have. Tsunami Sport. Quality. When are we starting? Now, get this end round and I'll put kettle on. Top man, I'll be round in five. Eric Ormley is a human behaviour specialist, performance coach and motivational speaker and has devoted more than a decade of his life to the study of extraordinary thinking. He has made it his mission to help ordinary people achieve extraordinary results by working with them to transform the way so they can transform their results. In Terry's work within the corporate world with business owners, entrepreneurs and in professional sports performance, he challenges and provokes each client's way of thinking with a specific, specific focus on helping them to shape their future and live their lives on purpose. This has led his clients to doing him the mind shaper. So Terry, welcome to the show. It's some story. Humble beginnings as a coal miner in Maltby, 15 years as a firefighter, and now UK's most sought after professional performance coach. Eh? Tell us a bit about your journey. Wow. <laughs> you know, when you when you when somebody reads them back to you, I feel quite humble, if I'm honest. It's, uh, it, 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 it's lovely. I just wish I could write that well. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I grew up in, in, uh, in Maltby in South Yorkshire and, and chatting earlier with you guys. Uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a challenging place to grow up, but uh, I was fortunate enough to have some, some fantastic parents and family around me who had great values. And I, I don't know if you guys have ever been uh, done this or anybody listening for that matter but when I was young I, I, I kind of thought to myself this isn't enough for me and I, and I was flowing through the normal uh, journey of life that people seem to do you know the 40 40 40 journey that I call it people do work for 40 years of their life uh, 40 hours a week and then retire on 40 percent of their pay you know what they've worked for all their life so the goal in that is to pay is to pay off the mortgage and, and, and you know before I before I go on there's nothing uh, right or wrong about that I was just in my head I was like I, I want to do something better yeah I left school with no qualifications uh, I, I, I had quite a lot of hundred breaks at, at snooker because I was I was going past I went to St Bernard's school in, in Rotherham and I went past every morning and arrived in the snooker club and uh, I, I always had this thing of being better and I don't know if you guys have ever done that and that's really how, how my journey started I spent six years as a coal miner and I, I wasn't sleeping at night. I was waking up thinking, is this it? Is this life for me? And it was like, well, no, I need to do something better. So after six years, I took, uh, I took the decision to leave the mines and having spent a year on strike as, in 1984-85. And then, uh, yeah, after a year, because I had no qualifications, I couldn't even get a job as a security guard. I didn't know the standard questions, you know, what, that, that people ask in interviews and uh, having been brought up in a, in, in a village. So eventually I, I got into the Air Force uh, and then that's really where my journey started of personal development and learning. Uh, I learned how to learn by using cue cards, by doing, you know, and I think as, as when I was at school and I, I'm quite, I think I'm a bit older than, than you guys. And when I was at school, uh, 
the teacher would stand in front and talk in front of in them days uh, a a board and would have some chalk and then and then write on it. And after five or ten minutes, I would totally switch off. I would be like looking out and watching football on the field. And and it wasn't until sort of my mid twenties that I learned about kinesthetic learning. Uh, and I think you guys in, in the teaching world will. But, you know, I was always learned by doing and touching and feeling and, and using my hands and playing sport. And, I, and, I, and I, you know, that, that's when I started in the Air Force. I started learning because I was on a fire ground learning and then I would learn from the books. And that really started my, my, my journey. I think like most firefighters, what, what happens is they have uh, something that they can do on days off, like they have a sport, you know, or, some, or they do roofing or bricklaying or painting and decorating or window cleaning. And I didn't have anything like that. So uh, after I'd been in the fire service a number of years, I thought, you know what, I really need to start doing something. And that's when I started thinking about setting up my own business. And just, if I'm all right, just talking, I'll just, <laughs> I'll just yeah, keep going. But... Yeah, carry on, Terry. Tell <laughs> and then, uh, uh, yeah, so uh, I went to college, rather than college. I did six courses in a year learning about computers because I wanted to be better. Uh, I started building computers and then I thought this isn't for me when people were ringing me at 12 o'clock at night and one, in the, one o'clock in the morning for computers that I built. And then because I'd spent such a long time in the fire service, I, I decided to set up a, my first business, which was in fire safety. And I realized that the way in which I communicated with others wasn't accepted well by them. I grew up in Maltby and people didn't understand my language. Uh, and, you know, the, it, it, I think we have these... Uh, I think they're called TLAs, aren't they? You know, the, the, the abbreviations that people use and the, and the language in, in which, the way in which I was communicating wasn't effective. And so in, in 2003, I ended up going on a, uh, uh, my first training course, which I thought was about communication that completely transformed my life. It was, it just completely transformed it. And, and I think that that decision that I made at that time has really shaped the rest of my life over, over the last 18 years in, in everything that I've done in business, in sport, uh, in voluntary work, in helping people. Uh, and yeah, yeah, just, just being the best I can be in order to, I can help other people. That's kind of a quick intro. And that's what you've made a living out of, isn't it, Terry? You know, you, you've spent years, is it, is it 18 years plus now, really trying to develop individuals at all sorts of levels in high performance across all sorts of fields. And, you know, we're really grateful for your time today. And, and I know you talked off air really briefly about the reason why you wanted to join us. And I just wondered if you wanted to share that with our listeners. Yeah, I think, I think uh, it, it's really important that in, in 2007 or 2008, I went to a conference and there was a guy speaking on the conference uh, and he said, well, coming from Maltby, we never had a, 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 an awful lot of money. And the guy speaking in, in the conference said, if you've got the ability to, to make a, a substantial amount of money and you don't, it's just rude. And I, that hit me at the core. That I, didn't, I didn't think that was right. But what he said next was really good. He said, because if you can make a lot of money, you can help more people. And that helping more people in your life has really resonated with me. Uh, I think if you can help more people in your life and you don't, it's just rude. I, I think your, your, your job while you're on the planet uh, is to add value to others. And I know in the, in, in the documentation, you talk about legacy. I think if, when, you, when it comes time that you leave the planet, it's important that you've left things behind that people grow and develop from. 
And that and that is if I can help one person as a result of this, and that is hopefully all the listeners can can tell the congruence in my voice. If one person gets help as a result of doing this, then it'd be great. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Bar Street, Terry Topman. The, you mentioned there about helping people. Um, and obviously the first person that comes to mind for us, just having recently spoken to him, is James Coppinger. You, you were um, instrumental in, in changing the, uh, the direction of James's career. Can you tell us a little bit about the impact that you had on him and the work that you did with James? Well, he, he, he's talked an awful lot about me and it's really quite humbling in the nice things that he said about me. And I really don't believe that I, obviously I had an impact, but I think, I think what's really happened is if you, if you consider a GPS uh, and you want to go somewhere in your life, a satellite navigation system, uh, you first need to know where you are. And what I did in the early days is help him to understand where he was and then he's taken the ball and run with it. So I don't need to, derive, uh, to, to go away from your question, but he's 100% responsible for all his successes. And he, you know, at the time in his life when I came into it, I helped him understand uh, the psychology behind what he was doing. So how he was thinking, how he was feeling, how he was acting and how he was behaving that affected his results. And there were a number of, of mental models that we used to help him to get through that. And then he just started uh, running with it. He, you know, he, I, I was on the radio last week as a result of this, uh, you know, as a result of him finishing the week before. And I was talking about, uh, you know, what, what an amazing human being he is. And, and you guys having spent time with him, you'll, you'll know that as well. But he, he's over, over the years has been, well, literally hundreds of articles that he's mentioned my name in. Uh, and it's very humbling for me, but he is 100% responsible for his own success because and everybody knows, not everybody, but if somebody takes the time to give you direction and you don't follow it, then that's down to you. So success is, he always says that his success is my success. And so it's a vice versa thing. My success is his success. So mm. it's, it's very, very modest here, Terry. <laughs> I, I, I agree. I think you've been very modest there. And, and when we spoke to James, the, the one incident that really still resonates with me was the standing on the chair incident. Can you remember that, Lewis? Yeah. So I, I don't know if you could you could tell us a bit more about that, Terry, because I think it was probably you that instigated that. Correct me if I'm wrong. But that standing on the chair moment changed. That was his seminal moment in his life. So I, I think what he's referring to is... Uh, uh, when I had him looking at himself in another chair and uh, yeah yeah and so uh, in, uh, uh, in in behavior if you if you if you can what we call a clean third if you can take yourself and look at yourself in a chair and then what I did with him I said what what's going on with James there and what it does is it takes away the emotion in in my world Emotion blinds people. If you've got a lot of emotion going on, your judgment's not right and you don't make the right decisions. So I pulled him, he was sat in the chair and I pulled him away from the chair and had him look at himself in the chair like he's imagining he's sat in the chair. And then I, and then I would say to him things like, okay, what's going on in James's life? And I had, he had to say, well, James is doing it and not, well, I'm doing it, it's James. So he, he had separated himself in his mind away. And then, you know, he, he would have, 
obviously he had have realizations and realized what he needed to do at that moment. And it's a technique that I've used now for, a, you know, for, for quite a number of years that I learned on that very first course that I did back in 2003. And yeah. And, and, and with, with everybody, it's like a recipe. We, you know, we all respond to different things. You, you're going to come in out and you're smiling. I'm going to come in at you. <laughs> I, I love hearing this from the different angle. It's so interesting. Then we've not done this before where you've had, one person tells the story and then the person who's done it is then giving their, and I, I just think it's so interesting. It really is. The power of seminal moments. You've had them. James has had them. We've all had them in our lives. The power of values, the power of wanting to get better and adding value to others. They're all shining through. Can, can I go back to the values? I, I love hearing about values that parents, the influence of that, you, you, you've come from that that pit village in Maltby, which we all know about. What did you, what values did your parents really instill in you? How have you then used them throughout the years? Yeah, so <clears throat> I think the first the first thing is my uh, uh, my mum and dad. My dad was a he was a prisoner of war for five years at Stalag Nine C. He was much older than my mum uh, when they met. So my dad was actually forty eight when I was born, and my mum was thirty nine. So I'm the, the youngest of four boys. And they were really, really hard workers. My mum was, was, was known, even in the fields in Scotland, uh, uh, you know, that uh, whether it was picking taters or whatever it was, she was always well known as to be the hardest worker everywhere. And, and so was my dad. And they taught that into us, the value of hard work and openness and honesty and doing the right things. And I, I brought up my children. I have three, three children. My youngest is 19 now. And I, and I always say this to them, ever since they've been young, you know, you can never get it wrong if you do the right thing. Uh, and that, that then kind of values of openness and honesty. And my dad was very direct and he, he was embarrassing at times and he would just say what he was thinking. And in my early years, I didn't do that. And I used to hold up emotion. But, you know, these days now I say, look, can I just be honest? And I think that these traits you attract your behavior in life. And I think these traits, what one of the things that I think will have been on this podcast is having read your, your website and what, what you guys are all about and what you've created here is all about open and honesty and trust. And, you know, the, probably one of the reasons I'm on here <clears throat> is, is because James has built that trust and that openness and honesty with me over the years. And you've picked up on it, you guys, but psychologists call it the imprint period in the first seven years of your life. And what happens is you get environmentally and socially conditioned where you are and other people that you're around. And for me, that's what happened. My, my family always doing the right thing, you know, always, always being honest. You know, my mum was a great, uh, was a great giver. She, you know, it, wherever she, whenever anybody came to the house, she'd have to give them something, whether it's food or anything like that. And that was, a, that's been a great lesson for me as well, because I think it's, you know, you're, in life, you have the outside world and the inside world. And I think this is, I didn't mention this earlier, but it's one of the things that are most important in human behavior, whether whether you're a professional sports person, a, a teacher, a pupil, or, you know, or, or whatever it is you do in your life. I think that you have an outside world and you have an inside world. And what I mean by that, what's going on inside you, your thoughts, your emotions, uh, and then the outside world, the things that we we allow people to affect us with. And I and I really believe that success is an inside job. And that 
and that was that i think that's what happened in my first six seven eight years of my life you know then then values incredibly important for you to take with you for the rest of your life so you, you you're saying that inside and outside success might be different in terms of what that looks like but you you, you sort of set those parameters internally first yeah if, if we talk in the context of behavior lewis uh so we all know that uh some people, if you say to them something that's negative, now let's look at football for now because you, you brought me on here about about James. Uh, in train, the story the story started with Dave Penny when he said, "In training, he's absolutely superb. He's amazing. He scores for fun, but in the match, uh, something's different. He's not the same person." And in the old boardroom at Doncaster, we broke that down into his mental strategy, what he does inside. And what in training, what he did, so I, I had him visualize this in the boardroom. So I say, if you've got a free kick, what do you do? And then he said, well, I grabbed the ball and he was showing me with his hands. He said, I put it down. He said, I step back. I look where the goal is. I look where the goalkeeper is. I look where the wall is. I decide where I'm going to hit it. And I hit it. And I said, and what's your result? And he said, well, I score. And I said, now take me through a game. I said, what do you do? He said, well, he said, I grab the football. I put it down. I look where the goal is. I look where the goalkeeper is. I look where the wall is. I think where I'm going to shoot. And then I say to myself, what happens if I miss? So he's introduced a thought into his strategy, into the inside game. And then the next thing he said is the crowd will boo. So that's something that's, that's the crowd will be in the outside world. So what he was doing was allowing the outside world to affect his inside world and when we taught him how, how to clear that strategy then then he's you know the, uh, on, on my 40th birthday yeah we worked on this in, 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 at Doncaster in the day they played Manchester City in the cup and James took a penalty never scored for the club before and uh, we we taught him the strategies how how to get into a high performance state in his in his mind and of course he did exactly he cleared everything out did exactly the steps hit it and scored and so that's really what I mean by the outside and inside world. And, and I think success is truly an inside job, how, you, how your thinking affects your results. So, so you're talking about the, the sort of cognitive ability to visualise and walk through a process in terms of a skill without any external pressures. And that sort of what, and there were two things I picked up on there that I think you put really beautifully simply, was the sort of that introduction of what if, and also the introduction of, the external pressures and the, the realism of what the cause and effect might be. So if I miss this, there will be booze. And, 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 I, and I suppose you can apply that to a number of contexts. And just to, to bring it in, in a little bit, how does that shape your behaviours with other people and their thoughts and their opinions and perceptions? And how can you get into that headstrong space of being able to say, well, what, what, and, and I think this goes back a little bit to, to that comment you made earlier, you can never get it wrong if you do the right thing, which I think is fantastic. So is there a, an understanding there, and I realise I'm rambling a little bit now, Terry, but I'm getting to a no, point. Is, is there, a, is there a, a sort of understanding there that if you are always doing the right thing for the right reasons, with the right values, that actually the external pressures and the what-ifs really don't matter too much is that what you're trying to get at yeah <clears throat> so if in life what, whatever you do 
1947, Alfred Kravitsky wrote a book called Science and Sanity. And in that, he made this statement, the map is not the territory. And in the, in the training courses that I've done previously, I would always say, in fact, let's, let's do it. Uh, no, it, this is what I'll do though. I won't take up the time doing it, but I would say, think about a beach, any beach. And then I'd get everybody to think about a beach and I'd write down a beach in, in, my, in, in my, uh, uh, my hand, in my book. And then I would go around and say, right, what I want you to do now is visualize the beach, see what you're seeing, hear what you're hearing, feel what you're feeling, right? And really be there. And then I'd ask people to, if they did it with their eyes closed, I'd ask them to open their eyes and tell me what beach it was. And uh, 19, nine out of 10 people will tell me either a beach that they've been to, their experience, or one that they'd booked to go on or somewhere where it's a dream holiday. But it wouldn't be the same beach as I was thinking, but I asked the question. And I think that's been a, a very uh, a very important thing in my life, understanding that what's going on in my head isn't the same as other people. And what I do in my life, other people might not think is right, but that's okay because it's not right for them, but it's right for me. And so long as I'm doing the right thing for the right reasons with the right values behind it, it's okay that other people have different opinions. And, and if you look at social media right now, or, or anti-social media, you see so many people trying to get energy from other people by, by abusing them. And footballers are, oh my goodness, the amount of abuse that they get from being a young person. You know, and I think that's, that's where we, we're going back to the inside out and success has been an inside job. Does that kind of make sense? So I, I've, I've just done the beach thing. Where do you just. think I got... In the Philippines, and I was just seeing my kids playing in the ocean, and it was just I'll tell you what, Terry, I was just took to that moment and I felt it. I felt it, it was so nice, and that's a strategy that's that could it's so powerful, isn't it? It really yeah. is so powerful. So, so that's a brilliant example. Uh, again, going back to to, to how do you get into that space that, that yeah. Louis said earlier? Mm. And it's a bit like, you know, you guys are, 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 have been working in physical education and stuff like that. And, you you know, in, a, in professional sport, I say to people, you know, what happens if you go out and drink alcohol or if you eat the wrong foods or you don't train? What happens to your results? And they say, well, they're, they're not very good. Yet, uh, even now, today in professional sport, most people don't, don't do these mental models and, and they are the secret, the drills that you do every day in your mind, like you would do with your muscles. If you train your muscles, if you play football, you play, you know, I play, I play snooker to a, to a, a, a quite a good standard. And, you know, one of the things that would happen is I would miss if I introduced any other thoughts into my mind. And over the years, I've learned a lot that if you're, if, if you're a footballer or especially like a golfer, if you're saying, don't go right, the ball always goes right. And so you've got to be in that moment and then you've got to train that before you actually get there. The mental training of, of what happens and you see some of the top sports people uh, stand behind a ball when they look at the, the golf ball and they play the shot in their mind because they'll never get it wrong in their mind. And if you run it six, seven or eight times in your mind, what happens is your mind then becomes clear before, before you, you take a shot. Now you can transfer that into being a teacher if you're going into... In, in, into a lesson or you're going into a important meeting or you're being evaluated you have these voices that come into your mind and if you play the story before five six seven eight times and do a film like you did on the beach 
there, Alan, you know, be there, see it, hear it, feel it. And then, then your, your physiology takes on it. It's a great, powerful strategy. It reminds me what, a lot of what you're talking about, um, of, a, of a book I read not long back um, last year, The Fear Bubble by Ant Middleton. It's a really easy read. And he talks about exactly that, that your fear is actually maybe a time and a place. And all you need to do is sort of play with that and understand that, what that will feel like before you go. And then, and then move it to the side of your mind where you can continue with your life without that bothering you, knowing that when you get to that time and place, you are prepared. You're internally prepared for an, an extrinsic sort of stimuli or problem to solve. Yeah. So what he's talking there is actually two things, I think. Uh, uh, I always say to people, if they say, oh, yeah, I'm frightened of flying, I say, when did it start? And they say, oh, well, and then they tell me about an incident, an experience. Uh, and I say, what happened before that? Oh, yeah, I was all right. Uh, and so what happens is that we have an experience. So very often if people have got fears or phobias, it's created in the first seven or eight years. They might not have a, uh, have a, uh, uh, a recollection of it consciously. But then what, what happens is you get a stimulus response all the time and it happens every time. It's triggered and it happens every time until you break the trigger. And when he's talking about moving to the side, uh, uh, we, if, you, if you have a fear inside, whether it's normally a fear comes from two things, what's called synesthesia. Uh, uh, you see something, then you feel it based on an experience. So if you're frightened of spiders, you see a spider, then <gasps> you get the, the breathing changes, stuff like that. But if you very often you say, how big is a spider in your mind? People will say, well, oh, it's like. I've got my hands up, but 12, 14 inches or something like that for, for people that are listening. And then I say to them, okay, what color is it? And it's normally black. And so I'll say, well, make it a rainbow color or your favorite color. And, and I say, what is it now? And they'll go, oh, that's different. And then, then where you say move it to the side, I say, push it into the distance. And what happens inside is when you push it in your mind, because you're the creator of your own thoughts, if you can push it into the distance and far into the horizon, your feelings change. They can't stay the same. So he's doing a couple of things there. He's talking about the incident and then and then moving analog, what we call analog marking or analog spacing, where you move it in into the distance, if that makes sense. It it makes total sense. And I, I'm I'm interested to how did you conquer your wife's fear of fear of flying by doing that free fall parachute? <clears throat> what what techniques did you use there then to to get her through that? And were you scared as well? Because I know I did oh. I did a free fall and I was absolutely bricking it. It was, it's the best and worst thing I've ever done in my life. So it's, uh, uh, the, the background, so as long as I've been learning about human behavior and I learn about logical levels in the mind. And what I mean by that is, uh, if you're, if you've got a, a fear of getting in, getting into a plane that's been created at a certain time, what's much more frightening than that? So what's the higher levels in your mind, the logical level. And, and so it's, it goes back at quite a few years now, but for about two weeks before every holiday we had, my wife wouldn't sleep, Nikki. She'd be getting up in the middle of the night and she wouldn't sleep and it, was, it wasn't great. Uh, and, and so I remember getting a, a leaflet through the door about doing a free fall with the Red Devils. And uh, I thought, how can I, how can I make this work? Uh, pretty much without my wife realizing, you know, because in order to do good, so in the living room, I got this and I, I rang my friend, Darren, and said, Darren, I said, uh, I said, uh, there's this thing come through the door. 
Have you ever felt like conquering your fears? And Nick is listening, she's in the same room. Have you ever felt like conquering your fears and doing something for the local kids' charity at the same time? So I don't know if you're frightened of flying, what, you know, have you ever felt about just jumping out of an aircraft and doing something that you've always challenged yourself to do, the most fearful thing? And he said, yeah, 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 let's do it. So I put the phone down and she said, my wife said, Nikki, she said, I'm going to do that too. I was like, no, 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 no. I said, you don't want to do it. And because I understand that if I tell my wife to do something, she'll be the opposite. So this I is said, brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So, so I said, no, 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 no. I said, listen, only a fool who's frightened of flying would jump out of an aircraft. So no, no, you're not doing it. She said, I'm doing it. I said, no, no, no. She said, I'm doing it. And that's what happened. And, and yeah, to answer your question, I was absolutely petrified. But we were, you know, she was going out the aircraft first and my focus was on her. So it's another example in, in life. You know, when you're in fear, your focus is internal. But I wasn't that frightened. You know, I was apprehensive, but I wasn't that frightened because my focus is on my wife and she was petrified. And then, you know, if you picture an, a small aircraft with no seats and the doors open and everybody sat on there, you will see it. But the people that are listening probably are picturing it. You know, there's no seats and you're sat on the floor with a, a red devil strapped to your back. My wife was petrified and she edged up, got to the got to the door and I said, she's going to pull out any minute. She's not going to do it. She's going to pull out every minute. This is a story in my head. And then she went and then I was like, oh my God, now I've got to go. And it really hit me there. I was, and then, you know, that time I was like, oh, I'm going to pull out now. <laughs> but no, it was fantastic. It was a, one of the most amazing experiences in your life. And if you do them, the little things that you're fearful of, the public speaking and the things like that all become much easier. Okay. Okay. I just remember that horrible feeling when you first go out and you just can't even breathe and yeah. it, it's in your mouth and you're like, I didn't even, I can remember it right now. I didn't even open my eyes or wave for the camera. I was that rigid. Um, <laughs> and, it, and it was funny because my, mother my mother-in-law was in a, I think she was in her late 50s, 60s or when, when, when she did it at the same time and she was just happy to be strapped to a, to this New Zealand skydiver who was a big strapping guy. So she was happy as Larry. It was great. I mean, that links into your own fears as well, Terry, where you've put down that you, you, you were learning to scuba dive and you had a, a fear of being underwater. So how did you deal with that? So a, a bit of context of this, in the fire service, you put breathing apparatus on and you go into all kinds of confined space. You go into pipes and I've been in sores underwater. Uh, I've been in sores in pipes full of water where you, where you crawl through. And it's all about testing your, your mental resilience in confined space. But when my oldest, Alex, was about 11 or 12, we went for a test scuba dive uh, and we went to the sea. And what happened was I, I'd never had any training before and, and we went under and then started swimming. And I realized uh, my first ever experience that I was about nine or 10 meters below and I couldn't get up. And every kind of fear that we have in our, in our life very often is created either from an experience or you spend your life around, like I always say, somebody says, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm frightened of this. And I say, okay, you know, have you had an experience? I said, no. I said, who have you lived with growing up? And mum and dad, is any of them? Oh yeah, mum's petrified of it. And, and we transfer our fears to others, unconsciously transfer them. And uh, so I knew I'd had this thing and, I, and it kept coming in my mind. And once you've done all these other things, you think, you know what, I'm going to nail that. So I made a decision with my daughter, uh, Kate, who's 25 now, when she was 12 or 14, uh, the, the year escaped me when it was, but it was like, okay, I'll do it with her and she'll see how petrified I am. 
and it'll be a great experience for her seeing her dad conquering his fears as well and it's like you know that leadership thing you know if you you where a lot of people want other people to do stuff uh but they won't do it themselves not prepared to do it themselves and that was kind of you know one of their moments that's why i did i went in and i, and I did that and then we we started diving uh whenever we went on holiday anywhere then jake was 12 he learned and so whenever we've traveled around in the world my, my daughter and, and and my youngest uh you know we always go uh, yeah, go diving somewhere and have a day out. The family, my wife sits on the boat and you know has a has a glass of wine and, and we're and we're out diving, experiencing, seeing, hearing, and feeling, you know, different areas of the world really. So uh, fear does hold you back, but once you, I always say this: all change is really hard at first, messy in the middle, but worth it in the end. And if you can change your psychology then it's worth it in the end. And some of the experiences we've had, you know, in different areas of the world with the kids, that we'd never had that if I'd never conquered that fear. No, and what a strong message to send to your daughter as well, to show that bravery and say, you know, you come with me and do that. I imagine that created a real bonding between you, even last year yeah. today. Um, yeah, it was very- funny you, you talking about the, the skydive and visualisation, because I don't know about you guys, but... I think I did the exact opposite of visualization when I did a skydive. I literally just didn't even think about it because I didn't want to. And I just thought, oh, I'll deal with it when I get there. And, and literally, you're strapping up, you're getting yourself set, you're doing the safety test, somebody's talking you through it, you're watching the video, you're walking out to the plane. And even then, I'm like blocking it out. I'm like, I'll deal with it when I get there. I'll deal with it when I get there. I was convinced I would. I was convinced I would. Got in the plane with no seats. You're shuffling, shuffling forwards, you're shuffling forwards. And that door opens, like the shutter door, like the front of a shop, and the wind goes, and I was like, oh, no. But yeah. like that, by, by that stage, it's too late, isn't it? You're in. Yeah. You, you're completely knee-deep, and you're like, right, I've got to do this now. And I remember the feeling of just being petrified. I thought if I'd have had that feeling at any time earlier than that, I would have made an excuse or bottled it in some way, shape, or form, um, which goes against completely that kind of idea of preparing yourself for it. I suppose in, in many respects, there's a message there about, you know, just trying to deal with what's in front of you and, and the realistic terms of it and not sort of creating some kind of monster in your head that really isn't there. Yeah, yeah, because if you think about it, fear's not real. It's, it's imaginary, it's in your head. Danger is very real, but fear isn't. It's, 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 a, 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 it's created by your thought processes, and then your thought processes uh, create you know, a, like a pharmacy of chemicals in your brain, if you like, and and then and then your emotions and feelings come as a result of it. Uh, but what you know, I, some people will call that a coping mechanism that you did. What I would call it is a strategy. So you've got a different strategy to what Alan had in your mind to deal with what was coming. Yeah. And so long as you know. The steps that you're taking, that strategy, you can use it and harness it, you know. And, and that's about, for me, a lot of people, like anxiety very often is about uncertainty about the future. So some people will go in, if they're going to do that, they'll, they're uncertain of what's going to happen when they jump out of the plane. You know, is something going to happen? Is a parachute going to open? Da, da, da. And your thoughts create the feelings. And, and what you've done is being present and at that moment, and this is probably something that you do in your life, be present at a lot of things that you are and not think about the future, but be present when you're, you know, when you're doing your, what, you know, you're teaching or your, or your culture change or, or all the things that you're doing. It's probably part of your strategy. And Alan's strategy is a bit more like, 
you know, oh, oh, how am I going to do with that? What's going to happen with that? You know, <laughs> uh, I, think, I think you're finding a nice way to say that I get on with it and wing it, and Alan's a planner and does things a bit more diligently. <laughs> which, which, to be honest <laughs> with you, Terry, right. is probably absolutely bang on. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's brilliant. That's absolutely Terry. It brings us on nicely to this idea that you. I know that you, you're really working with at the moment, which is, is called balanced thinking. Tell us a little bit about this idea of, of balanced thinking. So I think when Cops was on, uh, he was talking to you about, uh, uh, about what I call a tier model. Thoughts create your feelings or, or emotions. Emotions affect your actions and behaviours and your actions and behaviours affect your results. So I remember going into Doncaster Rovers and, 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 and saying, does anybody know why I'm here with, with you know, 25 first-team footballers in the room? I said, anybody know why I'm here? Apart from cops, nobody did. So I had a whiteboard and I wrote a, an R and put a box around it on the right-hand side of the page. And I said, football's all about results, right? And people went, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, no, fellas, football's all about results, right? And everybody went, yeah, right. I went, wrong. Now I'm going to tell you why. Because results, and you mentioned it earlier, are the effect. So what's the cause, the root cause? I always talk about this, uh, cause-effect equation. And I, I said to the guys in there, I said, okay, so you want a result, you want to win, you want to be the best football you can be. Uh, but if you, do you, do you understand that if all your actions and behaviours are in alignment with your goal, then do you understand that, that, that your result will be better? So if you don't have any sleep, if you uh, don't eat properly, if you don't hydrate properly, if you, if you don't train properly, do you think that'll affect your result? Yes. Yeah. So would you agree your actions and behaviours affect your result? They said, yeah. I said, great. Now, what affects your actions and behaviours? Have you ever got out of bed on the wrong side? And when I say that, everybody says, yeah, yeah, yeah. What happens? Well, I don't feel right. I don't train right. Oh, okay. So if you don't feel right, then your actions and behaviours and your training aren't right, then would you agree it affects your results? And they say, well, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, what, what affects your feelings then? Because what most people do when we talk about sport is talk about confidence and they look at something in the outside world to go right for them. They'll say, oh, I need this touch to go right very early on. Then I knew I was going to have a good game. Uh, but actually what affects your uh, emotions or your feelings are your thoughts, if you've got any language in your head. So this is what started coming. Well, I was thinking about this. Well, what, what actually, how do you create really good thoughts in your mind? And in my work over the years with people that, that, that have uh, had, had mindset or mental challenges, uh, I always looked at this thing that I, well, I look at, at the strategy around what people do when they're, when they're, uh, uh, when they're low moods or, 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 or mildly depressed or anything like that. And they've got, a, they've got a strategy. The first thing is they breathe shallow. They breathe really shallow. And if you're really excited, you breathe deep and you open your, your diaphragm and your shoulders go back. But every single person that's low, and this is great for teachers, because if you spot people, kids walking around with their head down and they're breathing shallow, you'll know that there's something going on inside them. And so I started looking at what the things that affect this low energy in people. And then I learned about something called the Hawkins scale. And if you understand that the body is made of cells, and energy and vibrations that so what the Hawking scale did was measure vibrations of moods in people for the first time. And I was like, well, that's interesting because there's a, there's an effect of people's thoughts. If they're feeling low, they're low energy, they're not breathing properly. They're looking at the floor, they're walking. 
if I ask you to describe a depressed person, you would probably say they're looking down, their shoulders are rolled. But there's one constant in this. You've, if I, I think of it as a, of a, a horizon, a line in the horizon, and that's like balanced energy. Anything below that, you're low on energy. If you've got like a, a line and then you go down to 10, and other people can't see it, I'm kind of build, building a sign here, but, and then you go up plus 10 is above the line and minus 10 is below the line. And if you think about your energy levels, when you do something in your life and you're not great at it, you have lower energy. So how do you get that energy back up? And then I started thinking about in 100% of the cases that I've worked with people over the last 18 years, of people who have been depressed or low moods or anxious every single time they have this thing what i call balanced thinking every day they have more negative thoughts than they have positive thoughts and if you ask anybody that's low on mood you know tell me about your good thoughts they'll go well what good thoughts if they're if they're really low and so one of the things that i started uh, working with people is called the flip so if, if you've got into a pattern in your head of thinking negatively all the time, and very often you see the things that are going on in social media, people say to themselves in their head, but they don't give themselves credit and gratitude. And I think that's what balanced thinking is. If you want to uh, get above the line, if you want to perform better, if you want to be the best person that you can be, I think it goes down to one simple thing, having more positive thoughts each day than having negative thoughts, because negative thoughts create a chemical imbalance in your mind uh, and so you've got to really train that and the latest study out of uh, out of uh, university of london says that it takes 66 days to change a habit so if you can if you can create a habit every day and like i say all change is hard at first messy in the middle but worth it in the end if you can do a wall planner of 66 days and tick off every day where you're forcing your yourself to think more positive thoughts in a day than negative thoughts, then for me, that's one of the secrets of, of human beings. Tell us how we could do that, Terry. How can you how can you force your brain or even trick your brain, coerce it into having these positive thoughts every day? So uh, it's a great question. Normally what I'll get people to do is this. I'll start by having an A4 page with a line down the middle. And all the thoughts and all the things that you say to yourself on, I'm starting this, Terry. A4 page, line down. Yeah, I know I, I know I can see it in your eyes, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I've got my book. <laughs> Everybody's on board, Terry. We're in. Yeah, we're in. We're on it. Uh, this could be a long podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on the left-hand side, you record your thoughts through the day. So anything you think. So a lot of people who, who are, let's say, low on energy or, 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 or not in a good frame of mind, they'll say things to themselves like, you idiot, as an example, right? So why did you do that, you idiot? And then what they're doing is they're actually saying that to themselves and they're enforcing uh, negative language in their mind. So I always say, write all these things down on the left-hand side, then on an evening, it's time to balance it out. So you have to do what the opposite of an idiot is, if that's the language in your head. So whatever it is that, that you say to yourself on a daily basis that isn't benefiting for you, you've got to think about the opposite. What's, what's the opposite to an idiot? So in my world, it might be a genius. So then on the other side, I'll write, you know, the, 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 the opposite is a genius. So rather than saying you idiot, start repeating in your head five, six or seven times a day, you genius, you genius, you genius. Do you notice what happens inside when you say that? 
<laughs> you're incredibly self-indulgent and if you say it out loud people are going to point at you <laughs> no 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 that's why you do it in your head Louis right and then you've you, you know it's a bit like like training training your mental muscle so you eventually that that negative tone and that negative language in your mind becomes positive and people laugh at me now because when they say morning how are you I'll say things like do you know what? I'm embarrassingly awesome. I woke up this morning and I knew today was going to be a good day because I woke up. And people look at me. They look at me like, are you some kind of, uh, of lunatic? You know, especially Maltby. Are you kind of some kind of lunatic? What's all this positive nonsense? But if you think about what most people say when you say, how are you? They say, all right. all right. yeah, I'm all right. They're doing, they're doing Yorkshire. <laughs> but then you'll get, yeah, not bad. And the not tone bad. Is yeah, I'm the being tone better. Is, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's it. But the mind doesn't pick up negation. So it doesn't pick up the not bit. So if I say this, uh, I used to do this on my training courses. I think it's, you know, it's, it's valuable. If I say, right, everybody listening to this now, clear your mind if you're safe to do so. Clear your mind, have a, breathe, a breath in, a breath out. And then I'm going to tell, I'm going to ask you to think about something that I don't want you to think about. I'll say that again. I'm going to ask you to think about something I don't want you to think about. So I don't want you to think about a bouncing kangaroo going up and down, up and down. And as it's bouncing up and down, I don't want you to hear it going boing, 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 boing. <laughs> and what I've done is introduced it into your consciousness. So you can't not think about it. It has to be there. It's even to try and block it out, you've got to try and think about not doing it. And so the mind doesn't pick up negation. So if you say I'm not bad, you're actually telling yourself you're bad. Your mind doesn't pick up negation. Do not play with fire. If you say that to children, what do they do? You know, what you should be saying is, let's build a house with them pieces of wood and introducing other things into their head. Does that make sense? Yeah, oh, it, it, it makes total sense. It really does. I'm just thinking how, how it's applying to, to what we do every day. And I, I've literally just come from uh, some swim coaching this morning. And and. Those, those, those seven years you talked about earlier and, and the influence of parents who parents who can't swim and they transfer yeah. that fear across yeah. and then they're telling their kid, oh, I can't swim. So the, the kid's hearing, I can't swim and I'm scared too. Yeah. And it ends up being that self-fulfilling process where they're a brick and they're scared and you've got to almost retrain it. And I think using that positive language where we could get them in the water and say, you can swim you are happy in the water. I think that will be really powerful. Is, is that the sort of thing we're looking at? Yeah. Look, it, the most powerful thing that parents can do for the kids is lead by example because they, you know, they, they unconsciously transfer that behavior to them. And the best message that they can give is go and conquer the fear themselves. Cause it will help that, that child. You know, I always say that uh, 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 children are like a book. If you're seven years old, you're, you know, you're, 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 you've done seven chapters of your life and you've got that experience. I'm in, I'm in my 56th chapter now of my book of life. And I can't, I, I can't expect any, any of my kids who have not, you know, who, who have not experienced the chapters where they haven't been here. And so for parents, the best thing that they can do to inspire and influence their children for the rest of their life is if they have a fear, go deal with it. Guess what you're teaching your children? Life's not easy at times for, you know, for, 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 for human beings. We all have our own challenges, but you're actually teaching no matter what challenge comes around, there is a solution and you never no, you, quit. You, 
you, it reminds me back to, to last pad, uh, last podcast, Lewis, where the, the Nike sign, just do it, is so, is so apt yeah. in, in that sense. And just looking at some of the stuff you've done, where you've climbed Kinabaloo, you've gone to Everest Bath Camp, you've done the Great North Run, the New York Marathon, the London Marathon. What, what was the motivation? Was that exactly it? Just do it. I want to do it. I'm going to do it. No, a couple of things. I, I, I really love doing two things in my life. I love learning and I love helping people. They're, they're some of my highest personal values. I love learning and I love helping people. So uh, I, I'm not the uh, most athletic of human beings. So one of the hardest things that you can do is, is, is well, for me, it was anyway, is, is start from scratch and train to do a marathon. It takes, if, I don't know if you guys have ever done it, but it takes massive discipline. It takes planning. You're a planner, Alan, I know that now. So you, you, you'll <laughs> do step-by-step stuff. Uh, He's never run a marathon, though, I'll tell you. Yeah, Lewis will <laughs> He runs about as far as sweet shop, Alan. Hey, that's a bit harsh, man. I, I blame my ACL. I blame my ACL. <laughs> <laughs> and so what, what I do is I get mentally right first, and I need, I need an end game. I need a goal. It's the same in culture, right? You know, if you're creating a culture, you need a, a vision and a mission and a purpose and, you know, your values. So I always do it for a, a specific charity. So the New York Marathon was for Bluebell Wood. You guys all know Bluebell Wood coming yeah. from South Yorkshire. And I went and visited Bluebell Wood. Uh, and I saw all the kids that were in there, the parents and the great work was there. And that was all I needed to, to plan that. Uh, well, it, really, it's a 17-week training program, but you've got to be in a decent space before that. So for six months before, uh, you know, I was training and I was working towards it, getting my body into a condition to train for, for a marathon. And then it's like, OK, I'm, I'm helping them kids. And uh, what happened was I got a chest infection two weeks before. And the doctor said, you're going to have to pull out. I said, I'm not pulling out. And he said, well... He said, you've got a chest infection, you can't really run. And I said, well, can't you give me some antibiotics? And he was like, well, Terry, yeah, but I'm your doctor advising you. I'm like, yeah, I know you are, but give me some antibiotics, I'm doing it. Because it's for these kids, and it might not have been the brightest thing to do, in all honesty. And I think that's, I need to make that clear with everybody. But I had a goal, and I had something that, that I had to achieve. And I, I had antibiotics, and, you know, I'd run 20 miles, fairly comfortable in training, and I was sick at 11 miles at the New York Marathon. And I was, I was walking. And so I had 15 miles of pain and torture. And you know, when you've got a higher purpose, something higher than you, and that's what it was, them kids, that money. And I just like, you know, am I, I'm going to finish it. I'm just going to finish it. There's no other option. I'm just going to finish it. And that's, you know, and that's what I've done with with everything. I've picked something that will be particularly challenging for me. And then I've raised a bit of money, you know, and the people around me have, have helped me raise a bit of money for, for charities that are important, really. So Terry, it's a bit of intrinsic motivation where you want the challenge, but there's also an, there's also quite a big extrinsic motivation there because you're doing it for the kids and you don't want to let them down. That's is that exactly. sort of what you need, a bit of mixture, or is it is there either side as well? Yeah. Like totally extrinsic, totally intrinsic? Yeah, I think I think the truth is that we're all different. Yeah. And it's based on our values. You know, my, I remember going back a few years now when I was, uh, when I was deciding how I wanted to live my life. Uh and uh, I, I thought about what would I do if I was retired? If I, if I had nothing to do, what would I do? And it was the two things that came into my mind. I'd learn and then I'd help people, I have a charity. So uh, I have no reason to do this thing called retiring ever in my life because I'm living 
but while I'm learning every day and then I'm helping, you know, and I'm helping others. Uh, and it's it's kind of living living my ideal life. But I think in answer to your question, everybody's different. And I think it's finding out, uh, you know, what, what works for you, what's your internal strategy, what works for you. And I think that's, you know, that's the truth. And asking, asking a series of questions, you'll be able to figure it out yourself, really. What's important, why is it important is really important. Yeah, I was just one, well, Lewis. I think you were going to ask something around that, weren't you? Just in terms of uh, those sort of questions. Yeah, tell us, Terry. What, what are those sort of uh, questions to raise that level of self-awareness and to check in with yourself in terms of where you are, who you are, and where you want to go? I, I think that I think questions come at different stages in your life. For me, that's been the case anyway. Uh, I was on holiday with my wife uh, in Cyprus, and we sat on a uh, a hotel on the beachfront and there's grass in front of the hotel with some beds on and then there's a path and then there's a sand and the sea and I'm reading a couple of books uh, one was Conquer the Chaos by uh, th there's an American company called Infusionsoft that do smart marketing uh, software and how they conquered the chaos in their business and the other one was a four hour work week by Tim Ferriss and I got to a point in it where he said you know I live my ideal life and he said, uh, what I do is I work, put $12,000 away, and then I go martial arts training in Thailand for a year. And I was like, wow, wow, that's amazing. And of course, I've got kids and, you know, I'm building businesses and stuff like that. And I said to my wife, I said, do you mind moving to Thailand? You know, he said, because one of the things he said, you can live like a king for $1,000 a month. And I'm like, wow. Man. And long story short, she made this statement, life's a bit back to front, really, isn't it? And I'm like, what do you mean? And she said, well, when you get older, your kids have grown up, you've got more time and you've got more money. But actually, when you need it is when your kids are young. And then my thought process started going, well, if life's back to front, how do, you, how do you live like you're retired today? And asking these questions, I've found most people don't do. Not Most people, if you ask them, don't know what they're going to do when they retire. They get there and they don't plan it. And so I ask these questions of myself. What would you do every day and what does your ideal day look like if you didn't need to work, if you didn't need to make money? What does your ideal day look like? What does it consist of? And for me, it was, well, you know, I'd get up in the morning and at the time, Jake was still at school. So I'd take Jake to school every day and then I'd pick him up. Then what would I do? And after you've done your holidays and played golf and all that sort of stuff, it's like, well, you know, what, what you're really going to do. And you notice that people get retired in three months and they'll go back working again, you know, because it's like they've not figured it out. And, and so for me, it was like, what, well, what do I really love? What would I do? if I, One of the questions I asked some of the people that I coach is if you won the Euro millions or 100 million, what would you do? And after they've bought the houses, the cars, whatever, the holidays and given, taking care of the family, what do they do? How do they live each day on purpose? And it was like, for me, it was like, well, yeah, I'll do something fitness wise because it's important Then I do. What would I do? I'd probably learn. I'd probably learn stuff around business and marketing and, you know, I'm reading, reading books or I'd go to, to places with some of the most inspiring leaders and teachers and I'd learn from them and, and, and then I'd help other people with it. And that's that's why I'll never do this thing called retirement. I'm living life back to front, living life like I'm retired. And I, and I think so many people don't do that. You, you almost see retirement as a as a, a synonym for for quitting, for giving up, for for stopping. No, no, I, I think quite the opposite. Uh, right. Living life back to front is about uh, is about uh, living life every day like you're retired. So 
you choose what you do uh, and having it's incredibly powerful and, and fulfilling inside if you can if you can live life every day on purpose it's just a wonderful place to be people human beings love to fill their time with stuff you know and you guys have, have come from south yorkshire moved to different areas of the world with the same mission you know and when you see these kids and, and teachers and all these schools that you work with being transformed you'd probably do that for free that's what I get for you. You know, obviously we all have to make money, but if you didn't need money, you'd probably put some of your time into that or something like that. And that's what I'm talking about here. It's, you know, it, without any barriers, without any outside influences, how would you spend every day of your life? So don't wait till we retire to do that, but start that today. Exactly the message, right? Yeah. It's a, it's a cracky message, Terry. We, we've talked about that a lot, haven't we, Lewis? Because, Terry, we've, we've, I've nearly worked away now longer than I worked back in the UK and I've got mates who are principals and, 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 and teach because they want to do that 40 thing you talked about earlier. You yeah. get your 40 years in, in teaching and you retire on a belting pension. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking, hang on a minute, that means I've got to do a 40 stretch. I'll be 60 odd. I will have never seen the world. I, I won't have done it. So our thinking with my wife and I was, can we work away? We forsake that beautiful wonderful pension but we're doing all the things we want to do along the way because i might it might turn 60 when you finish and i might drop down dead do you know, do you know what i mean do that, that, that's... yeah well one, one experience that changed things for me is uh myself and uh, a friend of mine jerry we uh uh we went traversing in the alps so going across the mountain tops and uh, uh i had to leave early uh, we had a four-day break. I had to leave on day three because I had something really important. This this lady came and picked me up in a vehicle. And she looked like a supermodel, but yet she was driving a vehicle, driving me to the airport. And so she said, oh, come and sit in the front. There's nobody else coming. So I'm, I'm driving with this lady. And, it, you know, you don't expect a taxi driver to look like a supermodel sort of thing. And, I, you know, I, in my head, I'm like, okay, well, there's nobody else here. So we started talking, right? And, and I said, you know, I, how come you're taxi driving? And she said, she said, well... My husband and I, uh, it's funny how these experiences shape your life. She said, my husband and I, uh, he came to me a couple of years ago and said, uh, I, I've had enough of working. I, you probably won't like what I'm going to say, but I don't want to work anymore. I want to get a little camper van and travel Europe and ski and snowboard and stuff like that. And she said, well, how are we going to do it? So I don't know. So they, long story short, they sold everything. They moved over and uh, through the winter months, there were ski instructors and, and through the summer months, they do whatever they could to make money so they could live their life. And this is what this young lady, and I don't know her name, and I, you know, if I ever saw her again, I, I really thank her for it because it's really uh, one of them transformational moments in my life. She said, what we've decided to do is to live our life. We won't have as much money. We won't have the pensions like you're saying there and that sort of stuff. But what we did is we went forward to when we retired. And when you get to retirement age, if you fast forward, you know, the, all the people that are buying houses and, and, and working in careers that they don't want to do right now, they'll just have a better retirement home than we will. And, but this is what really stuck with me. They'll have nothing to talk about. And I was like, wow. She said, but what we're doing is creating memories every day, every week, every year, that when we get old, we can reflect on. And if you look the journey that, that, that we go on as human beings, People never remember how much money you make or anything like that. You always just remember experiences. So for me, life is about creating experiences as you go. 
and I think that's incredibly it's incredibly important you're doing that Alan I love that I, well you've just you've just put a massive sales pitch out there for for every teacher who's who's stuck in the UK and wanted to move overseas so <laughs> what a what a great marketing job you've just done Brilliant. very well for anybody doing doing anything that they don't particularly enjoy, you know, we're not all fortunate in the world to do something we love, and and, and I think that the message that you're getting across isn't that, and, and it's quite rightly isn't that. It isn't go and pursue and do something you love. It's it's try and try and adapt the life your life in the ways you can to get something out of it that, that you do really enjoy, and everybody's in control of that to to a certain degree, and and that will obviously differ depending on your circumstances where you live, your financial freedom, but everybody's got the power to make some changes, haven't they? Yeah, every, everybody does, but not everybody realises it. Some people think, I, I can't do anything different. And that that is limited thinking. You know, or I, over the years I've called it stinking thinking. If you think you can't, <laughs> if you can't, if you think you can't do it, then you can't. You know, Henry Ford said, you know, if you think you can, you can. And, it, and it's just about, if you're in that position now where where you're not happy with where your life is, the first thing you've got to do is, is to think about, okay, what do I want to do instead? Where do I want to be? What do I want to do? How do I want to live my life? And, I, and that's the first step with everything that you do. You know, asking that question, how, how, you know, how do I do this? What do I want to do? Where do I want to be? How do I want to experience every day on, on, on my terms? And that's pretty much, yeah, that's pretty much the, the message for it. And, you know, I, 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 if I was in, uh, in in your profession, you know, I would I would want to experience as many things as I could, uh, but I guess not everybody's like me, and that's you know probably that's yeah. a good thing for most people. <laughs> was that the careers advice you got back at school back then? What do I want to do? Where do I want to be? It wasn't, was it? It was come come and come and sign up down pit, or can you yeah, go into? That's it. It? You, you need a you need a wage, young man. Get this in down pit. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and if you think about it, it, it is it is the message that comes through through tradition. You know, edu- I talk about this a lot. Education was created at the Industrial Revolution, and it was created to separate people who were smart enough to get into a factory so they could follow instruction. And I, you know, and I and I think education is an amazing, amazing thing. Uh, it's it's wonderful, but for me, it didn't work so well, uh, and, and it didn't work so well because the way in which uh, when I went to school, people were educated. If if you got 10 out of 10, you were bullied or, you know, because you were a teacher's pet. And if you got one, two or three out of 10, you were bullied. So everybody was trained to be in between three and seven out of 10. And it's like, I'm average. So if I'm average, I don't stand out and I don't get bullied. And for me, I was like, yeah, whatever. And, you know, I, I, as I say, I used to go and play snooker and even now people people laugh at my spelling and stuff like that, but it doesn't bother me. You know, I'm all right with it. I'm all right where I am in life. I've found my niche. I've found what I love. Uh, do, do I want to go back and, you know, and, and be good at spelling and grammar? Not really. It's not that important to me, but it's, it's massively important to other people. And I get that. And I, and that's, you know, my message is, is sort of live life on your own, own terms. And, you know, and, and, and if you, you get to the end, you know, life isn't infinite. You know, it's not infinite life. You know, we're here for a period of time. And and I think your job is to create experiences for yourself along the way, helping others and teaching and coaching and learning the people around you with the skills that you've got in order to help them. Without a doubt. And I think you touched on it there. Education at the moment has a double-edged sword. It's got challenging opportunity. And 
the opportunities, preparing people for for a future that we just we have no idea what it looks like. Everything's changing so quickly. It isn't teaching people to be a doctor, a factory worker, a bank clerk, a, a shoemaker anymore. You know, it's wider. It's a bit more ambiguous than that. And then the challenge is is the same thing: is how do we do that with with what we know and how we were brought up ourselves? You know, Alan will, will I'm sure testify to this. He, growing up on a council estate to Sheffield is very different to bringing up two kids in a in a very comfortable middle class life in, in the Middle East and in Manila. You know, and how how do you transfer those values across, and, and how do you prepare those children for for jobs that we we don't know exist yet? And, and, and we're certainly working and trying to find the answers to that. I'm speaking to people about it, Alan, and I think that's a life work in itself, isn't it? It certainly is. I mean. Just speaking to Terry there, it, how important is it that we engage people at school in different ways? Yeah. Some people love the chalk and talk. Some people love being a little bit more hands-on like Terry did. I think that's the challenge, isn't it? To have a model that suits all needs rather than a one-size-fits-all model for everybody. What do you reckon, Terry? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I, I, I learned uh, uh, about... Uh, visual, auditory, and kinesthetic. So seeing, hearing, and feeling, and how how people learn in different modalities. And that was my issue. I'd not learned to learn in the right way. Uh, so some people picture things when they when they're learning. They see things. They recall things from from pictures in their mind. Some people from voices, and some people from uh, from from behavioural experiences. I mean, and and I think. Uh, at, at some level, you've got to understand that the, the, the pupils or the people who who, uh, uh, who who you're working with at their level, and it's difficult if you've got lots of people to train. But if you if you're a, 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 a an infinite learner, if you're somebody that are passing on them skills, getting to know each individual's preferred modality and preferred way in which they learn uh, is really helpful for them. You know that that one-on-one -on -one time just would really be helpful. That's what worked for me anyway. I, I learned when I was in the fire service, I, 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 I don't have the ability to read and learn very well uh, unless I'm picturing, seeing, hearing and feeling all together. So I, I read a lot, of, a lot of books on on people that have done things that I want to do and you know how they've gone on their journey and I can see, hear and feel it. Uh, but when I was at school, if I'd read a book on, you know, on, on, well, in English, it just didn't fire me up, uh, and and so I learned in the fire service to do cue cards and the repetitive nature. So I'd write a question on the front, the answer on the back, and I'd repeat it that way, and then it always sticks. Then, you know, all through the fire service, the equations and everything, I can still recall them, and that's my strategy. But I think for learners, we've got to find out what the ideal strategy is for them and, and help them help them in that way. Goes back to what you were talking right at the beginning, Terry, about everybody being slightly different in that sense. The way that people look at different things is going to be different depending on their life experiences, everything they've been through, and that's the challenge we have as learners, you know. And 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 I'm not convinced we, we do fully understand every student that comes through our doors. And and what's probably more important, I think, is is that we give them the opportunity and the um, the challenge to understand themselves, at least if we've given them the opportunity to understand themselves, whether we understand them or not, by the time they leave our, our care is probably secondary to that. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure that, uh, I'd like to share a little, a little story with you that really influenced me when I was at school, uh, because 
hopefully there'll be a lot of a lot of teachers and people who are who are learning helping helping other people to learn listen listen to this and i think sometimes maybe as teachers you may not realize the influence that you have on people and as i say i'm 56 in september and when i was about 15 i was always in trouble at school and when i was at school i used to get cane you know uh, punishment on the hand so six of the best on the hand stuff like that and i was always in trouble uh, and looking back it was about energy i wasn't getting the energy that i needed in my life i wasn't getting that 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 energy from like for learning now is really important helping people i get energy from people when 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 you know they they change their lives i love watching i love watching cops all his life i love watching how he's bringing his children up and the values that he's developed into all that so i loved all that but a lot of this goes back to me being in trouble and the deputy head teacher at saint bernard's was a guy called mr glazier uh and uh, i was always in trouble and he you know he I would get caned and this one day came in, I was sent to, the, uh, to his office and I went in and for me then it was normally like, oh yeah, well, okay, let's get it over with. You know, I'll have sore hands for a few days. And he came in and he did something totally different. And this is what he did. He said, he said Terry, he said, uh, uh, for what you've done today, I have to cane you, you know that. And I'm like, yeah, well, let's get on with it. You know, in my mind, I didn't say that, but I'm like, yeah, go on. He said, but I'm not gonna. He said, but the thing is, if I let you away with it and I don't cane you and you tell anybody, I'll get in trouble. And I was like, okay, this is a bit different. And he said, and the reason, he said, the reason that I'm not going to cane you is because I believe in you. I went, ooh, I'm just saying that. Hairs on the back of my neck and you know I've got no hairs. But it just, and I went, I went, what? He said, I really believe in you. And he said, but if you go out there, you have to tell people you've been caned. He said, because if I'll get in trouble if I don't follow the rules. And I was like, okay. And all of a sudden I started standing taller and I went, wow. And that's not a language that we heard in a mining village. I believe in you. And I was like, wow. So I went out and people said, what happened? I was like, yeah, yeah, I got caned, stuff like that. Mr. Glazer, right, he took one class in my year. It was Latin. I got the second highest mark in the year and I own, in, in the final exam. And the only reason I got the second highest mark and not the highest mark is because I wasn't skilled in time management in exams and I didn't finish the paper. They said, put your papers down. I was like, no, I haven't finished yet because I knew everything on the paper. And that one behavior that he gave me, that, that one message that no matter what you do, I believe in you was so powerful. I've took that with me all my life and I've told that story countless times. And I don't know if Mr. Glazer is still alive, and you know if if, if any if any teachers are, are had Mr. Glazer who was in uh, in St. Bernard's between 1977 and 82, and if he is still alive, this message got to him or his family. That's the kind of message that changed my life, and that's the power that you guys have got as teachers and influencers and infinite learners. And that little message, and that's why it's never wrong doing the right thing. If you believe it's the right thing to do, look at the influence it's had. The next time, the next time I'm feeling sorry for myself, I'm playing this back. <laughs> Brilliant, Terry. Love it. Alan's got a few questions for you, for you to, to start to wind down now, Terry. A few bits, a few bits of fun we're interested in your answers in. Yeah, we, we like to do this one, Terry. It's leaders from history, dead or alive. Which three would you like to have an evening meal with, have a good chat, and, and why, why do you think they'd be a good mix? Yeah. Well, I think uh, one, 
so not this won't be probably traditional like people will talk about political leaders or anything like that but i think uh, uh tony robbins has to be one that i'd love to have have dinner with uh because he's probably responsible for changing more people's lives than anybody in our lifetime uh, and the, the strategies that he uses and how he talks and how he inspires people, how, how uh, he spent his life four decades, you know, from an experience in his life, from Thanksgiving, if you know his story, if you don't, I should, I should look through it, you know, an experience where he was poor, he had different fathers growing up and, uh, and the ego of one of his fathers not to, uh, uh, to accept a gift from a stranger. And now he, I think he feeds 50 million people a year in America now with his foundation. And I think a, a, an evening meal with him, that would be incredible. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of intelligence and a lot of great work behind his big Alfie bravado, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, I, I've been called before uh, the UK's Tony Robbins without the BS. <laughs> I've, had that, I've had that messaged at me before. <laughs> about about understanding human behavior because Americans do communicate a little bit differently to us in, in well, certainly <laughs> Yorkshire anyway. Uh, then I, I think when I look at people that change uh, that, 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 that change the world, people like Henry Ford, he had a vision and a mission to make a motor car affordable for every person. And his behavior was completely aligned uh, uh, with, his, with his vision. So when he used to stand on a production line, everybody used to look at him and say, he's proper lazy. We were all grafting. He stood there. But, he's, but what he was doing is visualizing how we can make this quicker, how we can make this smoother, how we can make this cheaper so that a normal person can get that. You know, so uh, I love that. And then the person that probably I'd love to, I would have loved to have a meal with him and understand his thought processes. And then probably... Uh, I think probably Dale Carnegie uh, and, oh no, maybe not Napoleon Hill. Napoleon Hill, I think probably. Uh, so he wrote the book, Think and Grow Rich, and he spent 25 years studying all the greatest people of his time in the 1930s. And it's the book that I advise everybody to read first if they want to go on a personal development journey, because he's got 13 principles in there that are life you know i still read the book every year now the life life as life today as they were in 1936 or 38 that, that he wrote it so so probably him and and I'll, I'll add one right now for completely different thinking so the fourth one i'll go i'll go rogue if that's all right the fourth right. one would be elon musk right now because his his vision you know of, of we should be multi you know, a multi-planetary species and how he's, how he's created that when everybody else has said, whatever you're going to do is not possible. I think, I think they're, they're some of the people that I'd most like to sit down and, and have dinner with. Yeah. Some good conversation there, won't they? And there's another book, there's another book recommendation there, Keynes, one for the summer. Think and Grow Rich. Think and Grow Rich. Any others, Terry, what are you reading at the minute? So I, I think it's important that if you're an infinite learner that you that you do read a lot if you want to do something and i uh wherever i'm going i have audible or i have a book uh, right now uh, I, I quite like uh, a strategic coach a guy called dan sullivan from america I'm, at this moment uh i'm reading who not how and it's all about how to build a, a business finding the right who's and not how so how is meaning we're fixing it ourselves and then there's a beautiful, uh, a beautiful 
lady from America who's a high-level coach called Mel Robbins. She's a wonderful communicator, and she's wrote a book called The Five Second Rule. And uh, what I've started doing is utilizing it, uh, and it's really how you transform your way you think. So uh, I'll just give you, you know, what you do in your head. If you're thinking negative, because this goes along with what we were doing earlier, then you count down from five, and then you move and introduce a new thought. So the strategy is, first part of the strategy is count down five, four, three, two, one, get up, move, move your physiology, and then introduce a new thought into your mind. So it's called the five second rule. And, th and the second part of it is to move. And then the third part is to move, is to put a, a, a new thought. So if you're thinking negative, right, five, four, three, two, one, then go, move your physiology and then introduce a new thought. And that's how you break a strategy in your mind. So Mel Robbins, everybody. So that's, uh, that's, that's me this afternoon when my, when our young guns had 24 hours on Fortnite and I'm just about to I'd give them a right roasting. It's, yeah, it's I'll try a, that. I'll, I'll let you know how it goes. It's a very different. It'll go well. Trust me. <laughs> it's a very different five-second goal to what we grew up with in Bodrum. I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> it's it's my my I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Seconds get a clout. <laughs> <laughs> and on, on that posh end of Rotherham, mate. You know, you, you might be all right coming part. <laughs> first time I've been the pushies guy in a room I'll tell you now right Terry thank you very much for your time thoroughly enjoyed that and, and, and loads of great takeaways you know even one of the, the most powerful parts I've got there you can never get it wrong if you uh, if you do the right thing you know what a beautiful message to send and, and so many of you scattered through our conversation today really 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 appreciate your time thank you very much for coming on Thank you very much for having me, guys. I really enjoyed it. You guys are great. So thank you. Terry, where, where can our listeners find out a little bit more about you or about the work that you're doing? Well, I don't really do a, a, a lot of stuff on, online these days or anything, but uh, uh, I, I guess uh, if, you, if, if you want to hook up with me on, on Twitter or, or Instagram, uh, you'll, you'll find Terry Gormley or Instagram Terry Gormley 21. Uh, terrygormley.com is uh, a website that I've taken down but it's just it's just being recreated now so if people want to add value with that and and and, and if you you know if, if you want to connect and and and, and you know ask questions or, or or share anything like that then you know please feel free to do it uh if there's something really really urgent and message me on twitter or, or you'll find me on facebook or something like that uh, if i can add value that i will with it with the time that i've got available thank you terry take care we'll see you again soon Thank you, Jen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Sensemakers, brought to you by the Infinite Learners podcast and backed by Tsunami, the number one ego kit provider for schools worldwide. You can learn more about Tsunami by, by visiting tsunami-sport.com. And if you want to hear more from the Infinite Learners, you can find us on your favourite podcast platform, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Until next time, we'll see you.